Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. We've heard it before, the consequences of our elections have never been more important. We've just seen that in the midterms, and it's already time to saddle up for the 2024 general. The big lie is an existential threat to our democracy. And as these elections have shown, that threat continues. Today, I've invited election experts. Major Garrett is the CBS chief Washington correspondent and David Becker, founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research, to discuss their new book, The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. Democrats are hoping to hold on to their narrow majorities in both the House and Senate heading into November's midterm elections. 35 Senate seats are being challenged. The chamber is currently split 50-50 between the two parties, with Vice President Kamala Harris having the tie-breaking vote. Well, that's where we begin with the midterms. Big names from both parties. They've been out on the campaign trail trying to sway opinions. And as you can tell, there's a lot on the line tomorrow. So fortunately, we have two of the best in the business here with us today. CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett and CBS News Election Law Contributor David Becker joins us now. With the nearly 590 Republican candidates There are 308 who we categorize as election deniers. Look at this. In the U.S. House, it's 238 of 436. It's a majority. In the U.S. Senate, again, it's a majority. Our democracy has been tested in recent years, but uh, with their votes, uh, the American people have spoken and proven once again that democracy is who we are. Hi, I'm Major Garrett, Chief Washington Correspondent for CBS News. I've written a book called The Big Truth with David Becker. It is designed to throw sand in the gears of the big lie. I'm David Becker, and I've spent my career protecting democracy for all voters, regardless of who they want to vote for. Sorry, not sorry. Thank you both so much for being here. We are recording this just before the midterm elections, but it won't drop until after. So I want to speak just regardless of the result 
We know that the Senate will remain closely divided and that the election deniers will either have won or nearly won races for governor, for offices which administer elections. It's just all horrifying for the House and for other offices. Given that we know all of that even before the elections happen, let's just break down what is the state of our democracy. Look, it's still sound. It's still resilient. There's still millions of Americans who cast ballots and do so with wide access, strong voter education, letting them know how to make a plan so they can vote. Early turnout already in this midterm election is very sizable. In Georgia, it's near record levels. And there are millions of Americans who help this process continue. They volunteer as poll workers. There are tremendous election administrators who are Democrats, who are Republicans, who are independents, who are devoted to this work. The good news is the way we cast and count ballots is better than it's ever been. It's more verified. It's more transparent. It's more reliable. That's the good news. The great irony and the hideous dichotomy is there's a rather large swath of this country that doesn't believe that, that wants to believe there is some great injurious flaw in the system when there isn't. They tell themselves a lie. And therapists will tell you, mine has certainly told me, the most damaging lies are the lies you tell yourself. And that is a threat to democracy because disbelieving this thing that is believable, that is verifiable, weakens the system unnecessarily and can lead to not just volatility, but can lead to violence because people think something is being perpetrated against them when democratic voices are merely being expressed. Losing an election comes sometimes with democracy. It's one of the burdens of democracy. You don't get your way every election. And when you lose, what you must do is accept the results and move on to the next election. Improve your message, improve your policy platform, improve your way you communicate. You mentioned the bad news. You mentioned what these lies that we tell ourselves leads to. You know, and I'd be remiss if I didn't just bring up that Speaker Pelosi's husband was severely injured in a horrible attack aimed at the speaker herself. And almost nobody in the GOP came out to condemn these attacks. And many of those that did condemn them, they were waffled or tried to blame those attacks on Democrats or BLM or other progressive movements. Even worse, many made a joke of it. Even worse than that, floated a new conspiracy with absolutely no merit whatsoever. How did we get here when we can't all agree that an attempt to kidnap or kill the Speaker of the House is a bad thing? Yeah, I mean, we're in a very difficult time right now where the entire American population is on edge. You can judge that over 40% of people are worried about things like voter intimidation. We have attempted intimidation in a few sites in places like Arizona, and of course, the attack on the speaker's husband. And there's still silence from some in the face of the reality. There's this disconnect, and Major alluded to it, between the reality that we face with our democracy and our society. Our elections are secure as they've ever been, looking at every objective measurement. We have more paper ballots that can be verified. We have more audits of those ballots. We have more pre-election litigation that confirm the rules and more post-election litigation that confirm the results. Than ever before, the professionals who run elections in this country have been subjected to abuse and harassment and threats for two years. They're exhausted. Many are quitting. 
And yet the reality, again, is that this election is going to go very well, the actual election process. As we sit here about a week before the election, about 30 million people have already voted. We're expecting high turnout. We see very few reports of any problems. We see record turnouts in places like Georgia, of course. And that's all a good thing. Voters should absolutely be confident that they're going to vote conveniently and safely this election and that the results will be reported accurately. But the problem is that we have this ecosystem of grifters that has gotten rich off of telling people the opposite, telling people that the sky is polka dotted, telling people that elections were stolen. And they're now seeking some political power. And the likelihood is that some of them will be successful and that not nearly as many of them as we need are willing to do, as you suggest, Alyssa, and speak the truth and have basic human decency. With Democrats at risk of losing control of Congress, President Biden delivering an urgent warning about Republican candidates who will not commit to accepting midterm results. We can't take democracy for granted any longer. The president calling out nearly 300 election deniers on ballots. The extreme MAGA element of the Republican Party, which is a minority of that party, is trying to succeed where they failed in 2020. And tell tell the sincerely disappointed supporters of the former president, losing presidential candidate, that he just lost. You've endorsed more than 330 candidates this election cycle. Uh, Tonight, win or lose, the results for Republicans, um, how much of that will be because of Donald Trump? Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit. And if they lose, I should not be blamed at all, okay? And it's not the fault of the election officials. And it's not the fault of some great conspiracy. He just got 7 million fewer votes than the winning candidate did. I have so many questions, but one is like, why do we even as a society, as a country, as a people, even entertain these lies? And why do we legitimize them as the Democratic Party by having conversations about them like it's a normal thing? Why aren't people screaming from the rooftops? Why aren't people taking to the streets? Why do we watch the news, these 24-hour news cycles, and we have these real conversations about this nonsense where it should just not even take up any space in our brains or our airwaves, where it's just like it is called out for the chaos it is. I feel like we have just been sucked in by this quicksand, and we're all just trying to like grasp our way out of it with these baby maneuvers instead of just saying this is all bullshit. Who is there that's just calling the bullshit? We hope our book is doing that to some degree, although it's just a literary version of screaming from the rooftops, of course. Let's put it this way. The people who need to read your book are watching Fox News and not reading your book. So what do we do? Alyssa, I'll take a little bit of that because I feel it's partially an indictment of not the work I do, but what the journalism and America produces or fails to produce. And there's a certain amount of accountability there. And I will tell you in part, this is not an entire answer, but it is a segment of the answer because I, of the two of us, David and I, have a pretty good feel for the Trump world. I spent 16 months on the campaign trail, 2015, 2016. I've attended more than 100 Trump rallies as a journalist. And I've met Trump supporters. I've met Trump supporters at almost every single one of them and had a chance to talk to them. And let me give you just a couple of ways in which they would answer that question. They would say, Alyssa, since you asked, the media and the tech companies suppressed the Hunter Biden story in the closing days of the 2020 campaign. That was true. And you all said it was a lie. So you talk about lies. 
Why wasn't that truth, which has now been authenticated and is being investigated by the Biden Justice Department, treated for the truth it was back in the closing days of the 2020 campaign? That's one of the things they would say. Another thing, because it's been said to me in an interview I did with Carrie Lake when I moderated Face the Nation for Margaret Brennan as a substitute, Carrie Lake said to me, you know, Democrats denied part of the 2004 election, the 2016 election, the 2018 election in Georgia, the governor's race. They weren't called election deniers. Why are we called insurrectionists and election deniers? My point is, this is not to justify their point of view. My point about that is they have a list of either grievances or examples that are self-justifying for their attitude about things that they want to raise questions about. And that self-justification process is a deeply embedded part of our current political reality. The self-justifying rage that used to be governed by a sense of forbearance, a sense of being a part of a larger American civic society and a larger American goal, and you did not have the algorithmically oriented intensification and distribution via the web and social media of these assorted grievances. And that creates a multiplier effect that I don't believe this democracy, this society has come to terms with at all. That's exactly right. The key point here is, you know, there are tens of millions of Americans who have sequestered themselves in media bubbles where they're only hearing lies 24 seven about the election in particular, and they're not hearing the actual truth. We start with Tuesday's vote. Republican primary candidates up and down the ballot have peddled the falsehood that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. Many are now raising doubts about the 2022 primary here in Maricopa County. Last week, Maricopa County Board Chairman Bill Gates called out leaders of his own Republican Party for, in his words, irresponsibly predicting problems on election day. They're being so segregated from reality that they believe their fellow citizens, their neighbors, in some cases their families, are engaged in a massive conspiracy to steal an election or to do far worse, as we know with some of these extremist conspiracy theories. And to some degree, we wrote this book with some sympathy for them. If you read it, we're actually the targets of this grift. Biden voters aren't giving money to True the Vote, to Rudy Giuliani, to Sidney Powell. It's the people who sincerely supported the former president, not all of whom are insurrectionists, not all of whom are bad Americans. And we wrote this book, and I think you're probably right, not as many of them will read it as we hope, but we wrote this book in the hope that some would read it and actually think through some of these things. If you start looking at the conspiracy theories that went around the election, they're so easily debunked. They've been debunked multiple times, and they also ignore the very positive story about the 2020 election, which is that somehow with great ingenuity and courage, public servants got together at great risk to themselves in the middle of a global pandemic, pre-vaccine, when we still didn't understand everything we know now about COVID, did not do this socially distant. They had to get together in their offices. They were getting sick. And they somehow managed the highest turnout we've ever had in any election in American history by every measure, 20 million more voters than we've ever seen. And then that work withstood the most scrutiny we've ever seen. The counting of the ballots, all done transparently with bipartisan observers, the auditing of those ballots, recounts in some cases, all of this work withstood all of that scrutiny. 
And we should be celebrating that. This book is really started out as a celebration of that work and really of the public servants, these professionals who get no credit for it, who their best case scenario is anonymity on the Wednesday after an election. And what they've instead gotten is two years of constant threats, not only directed at them and their staffs, but also to their families and in some cases to their children. question. In 2000, which uh, social media did not exist, I believed that the election was stolen from Al Gore. I don't know if that's been proven. I don't know if that's been debunked. But the point is, like, we weren't as a society digging our heels in and causing violence with the idea of it without proof. And do you think that the difference of that versus now is social media? I'll say briefly, the 2000 comparison is one we talk about in the book, and it's a really important one, because there are legitimate concerns that some people had, on, on to be fair on both sides, as that was being prosecuted by very competent teams of attorneys in an election that was truly close, 537 votes in one state that defined who won the presidency. There were legitimate election administration issues, like punch card ballots and the butterfly ballot, that made it difficult in some cases to determine, okay, how did this person actually intend to vote? Did all of those people in Palm Beach County really intend to vote for Pat Buchanan? We can never know that because we have a secret ballot. We can't go back to those people. But that was litigated. Rule of law held the day. There's legitimate reasons for people who supported Al Gore to dispute that decision and to dislike that decision. But importantly, in addition to not having social media, the losing presidential candidate stood as a patriot for something that was bigger than himself. And after he had exhausted his legal remedies, he stood before the American people and said, I don't agree with this decision, but I wish President-elect Bush the best, and I concede. And that was hard for people who supported Vice President Gore. Now the U.S. Supreme Court has spoken. Let there be no doubt, while I strongly disagree with the court's decision, I accept it. I accept the finality of this outcome, which will be ratified next Monday in the Electoral College. And tonight, for the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of our democracy, I offer my concession. It was probably hard for people who supported Vice President Nixon in 1960 and 1961 to hear the same thing out of his mouth. But those men at that time stood for the best of American politics and the greater principle of American democracy. What we have now is not only the social media platform, but the original content generator, which is the losing presidential candidate, being at the head of this movement to deny the loss, and then using social media as a tool. Major, you might have had something to add on that too. Sure. And there's a couple other things to note about that 2000 experience. And one falls very heavily on the shoulders of the broadcast media. That election was the last in America in which there were no rules about when a state could be projected as a win. Many networks, mine included, CBS, called that race for Al Gore before all the polls closed in all of Florida. Not a long time, but about 15 minutes. That should never have happened. 
You should never project a winner in a state until the polls are closed because it may have a material effect on voter turnout. It may be at the margins, but every voter should not have any imposition from the media about who's going to win a state when they haven't actually had a chance to cast their ballot. It can have an effect. And after 2000, every network developed a rule. What's the rule? We're not going to project a winner until the polls close. That was a reaction to a mistake, a conspicuous mistake. It should never have happened. Also, a couple of other remedial things happened after Florida. The ballots were designed differently, and Florida started taking election administration seriously, vastly improving its systems. It's now near the gold standard. When Ron DeSantis, the Republican governor, says Florida's the gold standard, he's not wrong about that. He didn't need to pass a law to create an election police after saying he had a gold standard. He didn't. But he was answering this call to do something, even when there's nothing wrong in his state. But 2000 is also worth noting in this sense, Alyssa, in our particular context. As we point out in the book, yes, Florida was close, 537 votes. There were four other states not named Florida in the 2000 presidential election where the margin of victory for either Gore or Bush was less than the closest state in the 2020 election. Okay, meaning the 2000 election was really close in several places. Writ large, the 2020 election wasn't really close anywhere. 10,000 votes sounds close, but as a practical sense, it's not close. And so the media made a mistake in 2000. There was a genuine question about voter intent. There was a hard time that the legal system had trying to apply rules of evidence and submission. And under a time constraint, it was a difficult scenario for everyone involved. We talked to one of the lawyers involved. It was not an easy case to litigate. There were lots of dimensions to it. And everyone sorted it out as best they could. And in the end, the Supreme Court intervened. Many Democrats, maybe you were among them for a time, maybe in perpetuity, called President George W. Bush President Select because the Supreme Court selected him. But there was a process. And I will remind listeners, elections are no different than trials. You are not guaranteed a perfect trial in the American judicial system. You are guaranteed a process, a process that is resilient and is adversarial. The same thing is true of elections. You are not guaranteed a perfect election that doesn't have any flaws or one miscast ballot. That will happen. What you are guaranteed is a process that you can believe in. And the good news, our procedures to do that have never ever been better. When you think about the timeline, when you think about Newt Gingrich and the Republican victory in the 1994 congressional election and his role in ending the four decades long Democratic majority of the House, things would have been a lot different had Al Gore won in 2000. It would have put the country on a different track for sure. Just think of climate change. And it is so interesting to me and fascinating to think about how one election would have made a huge difference in my lifetime. And I think what you said was so profound in that whatever the case was, Al Gore was able to put democracy and put the country and put some semblance of calm before winning and power. And that is what we were lacking now as as well as other things. And I wonder if you, and this might seem like a ridiculous question, but that democracy that Al Gore held to a higher account than himself, define what that American democracy is as it existed then, as it exists now, and maybe just explain to my listeners 
why it's worth protecting, why it's worth caring about. I think we're getting a really good sense of why democracy is so important right now by looking at what's happening around the world, whether it's Russia and Ukraine, whether it's countries like China and Iran, whether it's some of the unrest. Fortunately, it seems like it's less unrest than we might have expected in Brazil after the election. One of the most stunning political comebacks, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, has been voted in as Brazil's next president. It was a very tight race. The former leftist leader, who served 18 months in prison for corruption charges later annulled, took nearly 51% of the vote. The far-right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro won 49%. Mr Bolsonaro becomes the first sitting president in Brazil ever to lose re-election. Democracy, as messy as it is, as flawed as it is, is the foundation upon which we resolve our disputes. And people who are right can lose in a democracy. That's one of the things we have to accept. People who are correct about the issues can lose. It depends upon persuading a majority of the people under a one-person, one-vote system. I happen to have worked my entire career for that. I happen to believe in it but it absolutely sometimes generates bad policy outcomes. That's the fact. I just happen to believe it generates better policy outcomes and over the long haul, more justice and more equity than any other system that we've come up with so far. So it's worth protecting and preserving. That's the way we resolve our disputes. What's really disturbing right now is that there are some people who seem to be taking advantages in of our democracy, who seem to be taking advantages of some of the rights that our democracy protects, like free speech, to actually undermine the infrastructure of that democracy, the election process, and to leave open the possibility of political violence. I mean, if you hear the testimony, and we go through it in the book, letters written by some of the people who've been sentenced in the January 6th insurrection, and others, if you look at some of that evidence, it's very clear there are a lot of people who think we're in the midst of a revolution right now. And it's a revolution against democratic self-rule, against majority rule. One of the things that concerns me most about some of the extreme elements of the Republican Party right now is that they seem to be not only okay with, but almost enthusiastic about the idea of minority rule. I think back to the Reagan years, and for whatever anyone wanted to say about Reagan, whether you agree with him on policy or not, if someone said to Ronald Reagan, here's a path for you to win the electoral college and lose the popular vote, he would have sent them packing. He would have sent them out of his office and said, no way. I'm here about convincing a majority of Americans that my political philosophy is the correct one. And now we've seen a rejection among some people in the Republican Party of the idea that the path to democratic self-rule, the path to political power, requires you to convince a majority of the voters. And rather, the path can absolutely take place where you scare voters where you suppress voters and where you deny elections that you've lost. And those Republicans, those true Republicans, not the extremists, are being ostracized from their party. You know, I recently teamed up with Adam Kinzinger, who is a Republican, to support a bipartisan slate of candidates for office who had stood up to the big lie. He'll be out of office in January. Liz Cheney, who did the same thing, will be out of office in January. Will there be any partners left in the GOP to work with instead of against to protect our country? It's an open question. And uh, let me offer an answer to the question that David answered just a second ago, because one of the things that democracy asks of all of us is a word we use frequently in the book, forbearance. 
Look, democracy can break your heart. Don't think that Al Gore didn't believe he would be a better president and believes that every action of the George W. Bush administration vindicates in his mind that he would have been a better president. And to know that and to be so close and yet to say, even though I know it's every fiber of my being, I would be better at this job than the person who's now going to occupy that job, even though that crushes me, that breaks my heart and may make my country worse off because I'm not there. I have to let that happen. Democracy asks a great deal of all of us. It asks a great deal of all of us during the Vietnam War, when for years and years and years, that war was prosecuted when an ever larger percentage of this country came to doubt the validity of that war, the prosecution of the war, and became increasingly angry about the lies said on behalf of that war. That also tested our sense of democracy, our sense of cohesion. My own family was ripped apart by Vietnam. My parents were alienated from my older brother and sister. I had two cousins fighting in Vietnam. It was a family dispute of enormous importance. But at no point did anyone involved in that dispute over a huge issue, life or death, war or peace, say the underlying mechanism of America was flawed. That's where we are now. We actually don't have a problem, but we have a psychic disease that tells us there is. Whenever you turn on the news, it does seem like that there's story after story showing just how divided America is right now. Like in Texas, there is a drag brunch for kids over the weekend. However, armed groups from both sides showed up and faced off with each other. There's also all this uproar over Hunter Biden's laptop, and now GOP senators are demanding answers over the FBI possibly bearing the story. Even former President Trump is now demanding he be declared the winner of the 2020 election over the whole thing. So how divided are we really? Well, a recent poll showed that more than 40% of Americans think that a civil war is likely in the next decade. And that skips over what continues the great American experiment, which is forbearance and belief that over time and fits and starts, we will get things more right than wrong. That is disbelieving in the American ethic that brought us to where we are now. Active disbelief in that is an act of aggression against our own country. And from my perspective, Alyssa, it baffles me. How do we make the American people who are struggling, care in the sense that I feel like when we start talking about democracy or forbearance, that it becomes labeled elitist because people are struggling to put food on the table. People are one financial hardship away from total financial ruin. So how do we connect the dots for people where this democracy is directly related to what is happening around your kitchen table? I think one of the things that's really difficult sometimes is we have to approach this with some sense of humility and empathy for people with whom we disagree about deeply divisive issues. It is hard when you're talking about women's health or sexual identity, gender identity, or climate change, to view people with whom you have very deep disagreements as something other than the enemy in this environment. And I understand that. But I think what's clear is that being right on the issues isn't enough. We have to find some ability to reach across and in some cases, make some concessions and build a bigger tent. 
and find ways to view the people with whom we disagree as fellow citizens. I think we're lacking that. And I think that lacking is on both sides, to be perfectly honest. One of the things we talk about in the book is when extremists go to their whataboutism arguments about election denial, the facts they cite aren't wrong. There have been moments where Democrats have denied outcomes of elections. It hasn't been coordinated. It hasn't been a coup. It has not been led by a president or a presidential candidate. But if you look at the draft executive order that President Trump almost signed, which would have authorized the military to seize voting machines in the states, something unprecedented. The first page and a half of that cites a lawsuit filed by left-leaning activists in Georgia. So there's seeds of this across the political spectrum, which is not to say that it's morally equivalent. It is not at all. It is not 50-50. It is not close to 50-50. It's not even 99-1. It might be 99.99 to 0.01. But it's not 100 to 0. And I think it requires some humility in looking inside ourselves to make sure that we avoid being sanctimonious about some of these things, that we don't sometimes find disappointment in election outcomes to the degree that we might entertain election denial to some degree. There is no election in the United States, no major election that's ever been documented to be stolen or even sufficient evidence. There were claims brought in 2004. There were claims brought in 2016. There was no evidence to support those claims. But 2020 was very different. And we've never seen anything on the left that even remotely comes to what we're seeing on the extreme right right now. But it probably puts more pressure on us to find ways, as you did with Representative Kinzinger, to reach across the aisle and find elements of consensus. And one of those elements of consensus, I've heard from some folks on the right, that they are now one issue voters and their one issue is democracy. Whether it's people like Liz Cheney and you ask this question about who can we partner with, there are Republican voices of truth and reason and courage out there. Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, Barbara Sagaski, the Republican Secretary of State of Nevada, members of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors in Arizona. There are people who've stood with conviction and courage for the truth and for democracy as the way that we resolve our differences. Georgia might be a positive story, even if you don't like the outcomes that come out of Georgia in this coming election. The Republican election deniers who challenged the truth tellers lost in their primary. And that is actually an area that where most of the Georgia slate of candidates are not election deniers right now. Not all of them, but most of them. And so you can have legitimate policy differences between the Republican and Democratic candidates for Secretary of State, of course. But they're both people who want democracy to work in this country, and they will stand up for that democracy. Million dollar question. You ready? How much of an effect will Elon Musk who's basically described himself as a free speech absolutist, buying Twitter have on future elections. Well, Elon Musk taking to Twitter, the platform he now owns and operates, urging, quote, independent-minded voters, close quote, to cast their ballots for Republicans in the midterm elections today. Here's what he tweeted, quote, shared power curbs the worst excess of both parties. Therefore, I recommend voting for a Republican Congress, given that the presidency is Democratic. That is a complete, by the way, contradiction of what he tweeted just a few months ago when he wrote, quote, for Twitter to deserve public trust, it must be politically neutral, which effectively means upsetting the far right and the far left equally. We've already seen a sewer. I mean, I could not believe the day of the day after the amount of hate overflow that I have seen just since he took over. So what are we looking at here and how do you think it's going to impact future elections? 
boy, if I had the answer for that, I, you should probably have me on every week. You are asking the million dollar question. And obviously, it's not just Twitter, right? Twitter is a symptom. It's a very big symptom of a larger problem, which is private control of these platforms that we all rely upon that are almost utilities. And I'm having these internal conversations with my staff and communications people too right now, because Twitter is a very effective tool to communicate with others, people with whom I disagree in some cases, people with whom I agree. By the way, I always try to use Twitter respectfully. I try and work really hard not to troll anyone, not to gain joy from trolling anyone. I think that's a Twitter is a platform that really kind of is conducive to that. But I don't know how this is all going to play out with Twitter, with any kind of consolidation of platforms that we rely upon to spread information. I, I used to be, I wouldn't say a First Amendment absolutist, but I believe in free speech. And I believe that in most cases, the antidote to bad speech is good speech, not shutting down bad speech. I'd like to believe that. But I have to admit that's being tested. Yeah. And I think the problem is that like social media, it's being used as an organizing tool. It's being used as like a recruitment to the chaos, but also being used to create the chaos and also to recruit. When you have elected officials blatantly saying this is going to cause a civil war and wait till you see what happens on January. I mean, these leaders are actually organizing uh, rebellion in plain sight. So it's not just freedom of speech, right? It is using social media as tool to organize violence and hate. Especially when you see the spike in anti-Semitic and racist language that was used literally within 24 hours of Musk taking control of the platform. I think there was a really interesting note I'll make as we sit here just recently, a federal court in Phoenix, Arizona, issued an injunction prohibiting kind of vigilantes and tactical gear with weapons from intimidating voters around drop boxes and polling locations. It's a really good order. He had previously denied, in another case, a broader injunction. And he did that under First Amendment grounds that we want to protect the right of people to express themselves in our society. But First Amendment does not protect actions. It does not protect intimidation. It does not protect incitement. And I think we have, you know, most people don't understand what the First Amendment actually does. They think, you know, many cases, because civics education has been so poor in this country, the First Amendment doesn't say that you should receive no consequences for anything you say at any point in time. That is not what the First Amendment says. The First Amendment says consequences are absolutely appropriate, but the government cannot restrict you from saying that. You might have consequences for that, whatever you say, and you definitely have consequences for what you do, and the government can restrict what you do. I'm not a First Amendment lawyer. I'm sure Major has some deep thoughts on this as someone who's worked in the media for decades. But it is a big question and one that I'm struggling with. So the title of your brilliant new book is The Big Truth. What is that truth? There are many of them. As we say in the book, there are a lot of little truths in America. One of them is our elections, by design, are decentralized, localized, and right before you. We don't have a federal election 
administrator. Our elections are done at the local level by your friends and neighbors. The FBI says seven states are seeing more threats to election workers ahead of the midterms. They are Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Wisconsin. The 2020 election results were disputed in all of those states, and President Biden won in each of them. So again, David and I like to try in this way to approach people in a way that we hope they can be receptive. If you believe there was a conspiracy, then by that very belief, you are accusing your neighbors of being conspirators against you. Most Americans don't believe that. What they'll say is, okay, my election's fine, but elections somewhere else are tainted because they don't like the election outcome or because they're suspicious of the way that people vote in urban areas. That's been a consistent theme with obvious racial undertones throughout the entire Trump approach to American politics, that deep sense of suspicion. But even then, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny because, as David said, we have more ways to verify election outcomes than we've ever had before. And that is a big truth. Another big truth is, as we've mentioned, our procedures are better, they're more resilient, and they're more auditable than they've ever been. Back in 1960, we had a national election decided by one state by a very slender margin, Illinois. In the very beginning, or not the beginning, but in the midst of the Cold War, when the idea of Russia and the United States using nuclear weapons against one another was a very real situation. Again, comparing things to 2000, Richard Nixon, as the sitting vice president, Dwight Eisenhower, believed he had a better approach to dealing with nuclear possible annihilation than John Kennedy. Part of his whole campaign message was, JFK, John F. Kennedy is inexperienced. He can't handle what's coming. I can. There were many Republicans who implored Richard Nixon to challenge that election in 1960 because the stakes were so large. There were 10 different grand juries impaneled, Alyssa, in that 1960 election to investigate potential fraud. Nixon said, I want none of it. Now, think about those stakes. Those are existential stakes. Those are really large global stakes. And we didn't have as good a system in 1960 as we do now to actually find out what happened. We can find out what happened. So if we were less clear, we were more blind, if you will about our election procedures in 1960, places like Cook County, Illinois, probably had some systemic issues. But Richard Nixon said, I'm not going to tear the country apart over that. I lost. I lost closely. The stakes are existential. We're talking about nuclear war and the very survival of this country, possibly the planet. But I'm going to accept. That was harder then than it is now. It's actually easier now to accept the result of election because you can actually and if the Trump people had ever done this, they would have gotten answers that they didn't want to get because they didn't ask for recounts in three states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, though they were entitled to. You can find out what happened. We found out what happened in Arizona. There was a sham audit, hand counting done by the cyber ninjas, found out that the Biden margin actually grew when they looked at every ballot. So we have a confidence system that's better than we had when stakes were higher or as high and our clarity wasn't as good. 
So this is a psychic problem. And you asked earlier, how do we talk to people? Look, one thing that I'm very conscious of, and David is too, and I'll put this in a slightly different context because I'm a dude. So I don't want to mansplain anything. And I don't want to civic-splain anything. I don't want to talk down to people. I don't want to say to them, I've done all this research, and I know, and you don't, and one day you're going to catch up with me. I don't want to come to that. I don't want to have that orientation. I just want to say, you know what? America works in all the ways you hope it would work. It works locally. It works accountably. It works in the best way that you like America and you like to think about America. The way you want to think about America, Trump supporters, when it comes to elections, is the way it works. Stop kicking the thing that you say you want to uphold. If I could just add really quickly. So I run a nonprofit, the Center for Election Innovation and Research, and I've been working in this field for 25 years. And we work with election officials of both parties to promote elections that are blind. We use is elections that people should trust and do trust. And the fact is that we've done a remarkably good job as a society on the should trust part. We know the big truth is that when election results are reported out, those results are accurate. 41% of people trust the process a great deal, and 38% say they fairly trust it. Uh, nearly 70% of voters also saying mail-in voting is secure. So is there a possibility that there is a silent majority among conservatives that's not speaking out in polling? Or maybe that those who think recent elections were stolen or fraudulent are really fringe players? I think that there is some comfort to be drawn from those figures. They reflect how voters who showed up to vote mark their ballots. Now, does that mean that disinformation doesn't affect those voters? To some degree, of course not. Disinformation can absolutely affect voters. There can be political ploys that affect voters in a variety of ways. It's easier to vote in some states than others, although it's largely as easy to vote as it's ever been in this country nationwide. But you can have absolute confidence that those results are the real results. Don't fall back on the cynicism of saying, my side lost because something inside the system, inside the black box, which is not a black box, inside the vote counting process was rigged against me. That way lies madness. That way lies the destruction of democracy. If losing candidates cannot accept that they lost. Now, there were things in 2016, majors referred to things in 2020 that Republicans didn't like. Certainly, you can raise qualms about the FBI announcement a week before the election with regard to Hillary Clinton's servers and other things. But voters who went to the ballot box and marked their ballot, those ballots were counted correctly. Could they have been mistaken? Could they have been lied to? 100%. But the process of the actual counting of the ballots works. And Major and I are basically saying in the big truth, that should be sacred. What gives you both hope? Well, and, and one other thing, several things give us hope, but real quickly. Don't use your crappy campaign as an excuse to deny an election. Look, Al Gore didn't win New Hampshire. If he'd won New Hampshire in 2000, he'd been president of the United States. All right? That was a winnable state. He didn't win it. Hillary Clinton never campaigned in Michigan. There were, I think, 80,000 fewer voters out of Wayne County, which is where Detroit is, in the 2016 election than there were in the 2012 election for Barack Obama. That's a campaign mistake. Okay? Donald Trump disempowered Republican voters from using a very safe, very secure and highly favorable method of voting for Republicans historically, mail-in balloting. That was a campaign mistake. That was a strategic blunder of massive importance. Campaigns, we are begging them, do not indulge in the slanderous enterprise of denouncing elections because you ran a crappy campaign. 
That's my last point on that. When you run a crappy campaign, own it. You lost, get better the next time. What gives me hope? I'll tell you this, Alyssa, and David and I did a lot of reading. I really poured into this as we were putting our book together. So there are two great struggling periods of American history, two great struggling periods of American history. The Great Depression is one, but it's not in the two. The big two are, are the Civil War and Vietnam, because at both times, the country felt as if in the Civil War, it was coming apart. There was a secession movement. There was a four-year war that left 600,000 casualties on both sides. And then there was Vietnam. And when Vietnam was being written about, most commentators, much smarter than I, said, this country has never been as divided as it has been since the Civil War. We were struggling during the Great Depression, but we weren't divided. We were divided over Vietnam and the Civil War. We are now in a place that feels very much similar to that. Why am I hopeful? Because with the Civil War, we had a structural defect that could be resolved no other way. The original sin of slavery, there was 20 years of legislative effort to compromise it, not compromisable. We had to fight a war over it. Vietnam, there was only one way out, to end the war. The only way this country was going to resolve its tension, its deep aggravation that led to massive protests, bombings on college campuses, National Guard shooting at Kent State, all sorts of madness. The only way that could be resolved was to end the war. Now we have a time, what's the structural thing beneath it? It actually works. We don't have a problem. We have an argument about a non-existent problem. Not true in the Civil War, not true in Vietnam. In both cases, we had a real problem. We don't have a real problem. We have a struggle over something that actually structurally isn't problematic. And when deniers win, using the same system that they were castigating and slandering six months before, their hypocrisy will be revealed. And I believe, and I'm hopeful, that that will have a cauterizing effect on this open wound, that hypocrisy revealed will be hypocrisy ended. Now, I could be a doe-eyed optimist about that, but I am hopeful about that. Yeah, and what gives me hope, as I mentioned, I work with election officials all over the country around this time of year. I'm talking to dozens of them a day. These people are liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans. They're from Alaska to Florida. Election officials, people should understand, because I, I think about elections 365 days a year because I'm a nerd that way and it's my job. But most people don't. They only think about elections really in close proximity to an election. And what most people don't realize is election officials are working all the time. They're working overtime and they're not doing this to get rich and famous. It's very rare that they achieve greater political power. They're doing this out of a sense of a calling. And it doesn't really matter what their political views are. They want to give voice to the American people. Their best case scenario on the Wednesday after an election is anonymity. Their best case scenario is that no one cares about the election anymore. And what they've been subjected to is over the last two years is they've received all this abuse and these threats and harassment, not because they did a bad job, but because they did probably the best job that these public servants had ever done. They'd been more professional than they ever were. And despite all of that, and some of them are leaving. But the vast majority are staying. And despite the fact that Republicans have to go home at night in red areas and be questioned by their own families and neighbors about whether they stole the election, about an election where they voted for Trump and they don't find sanctuary at night at home in their neighborhoods and they're staying on it, they're staying on this job. And despite the fact that there are roving bands of grifters, and I'm not using that term um, metaphorically, there are literally grifters who are going from county to county, mostly red counties, trying to corrupt election officials, trying to get them to violate their oath of office, trying to get them to give access to voting machines that would be illegal. 
all to support the grift. And the fact that despite that, for two years, that's happened, and that the number of election officials who've actually been corrupted, you can count on one hand out of the tens of thousands of election officials. That inspires me that we have this group of true public servants who disagree on tax policy and foreign policy, but who agree that they perform a sacred function in our democracy to give voice to their voters. And they want all of their eligible voters to show up and have confidence in that process. That gives me hope and inspiration every single day. And when you go vote, if you want to volunteer to be a poll worker, become a part of that. But if you run into your election official at some point, thank them. Give them a hug. They probably need it, quite honestly. It is a thankless job at best, and it has been harrowing for them over the course of the past few years. And the fact is, everything up through the election day and the counting process is going to go well. The problem is that there are going to be grifters out there trying to tell you the opposite, and the election officials are still going to do their job with professionalism. David and Major, you both give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Alyssa. You know, it's interesting. You said at the beginning, uh, you can choose fear, you can choose love. You know, you can choose hate, you can choose hope. But everybody has that choice to make every day. And, you know, the darkness in every... Look, I personally believe everybody in your heart, every day you're fighting kind of a battle of light and dark, right? You can acquiesce to the darkness and... Or you can let your heart be filled by light. We don't win that battle every day. Uh, and I think it's harder to do it because fear, anger, division is really motivating. And and to have somebody, you know, come on like you and just be willing to say, look, democracy is what matters. We need a lot more of that in this country. And we're seeing that grow. We're seeing it build. Patriotism. It's a word that's been co-opted by the forces who are against democracy. It's an Orwellian perversion of language, but the purveyors of the big lie can't undermine the reality of patriotism. No matter what they do, we true patriots, those who believe in our country, who see its potential and know that the principles which should define us must stand against them. At the end of the day, we're in an existential fight for our future. Will truth win? Will love? Will patriotism? Or will its enemies? I have to tell you, friends, I'm worried. I'm worried that even given the importance of the midterms, so many of us sat them out, that millions and millions of people didn't vote. There's no room left on the sidelines. The outcome is too important. Two years might be all we have left. Are you a patriot? If so, it's time to prove it. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.